Hello, all you Bible reading students out there. It is week number four of our Rooted podcast. I've been hearing a lot of good comments from the podcast, so I hope it's been helpful and beneficial to you as you continue to read through God's Word from Genesis all the way to Revelation. This week, we are in the book of Exodus. So we have finished Genesis, and beginning this week, we're going to start in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 1 through Exodus chapter 23, verse 13. And since we are starting a new book this week, let me just make a few comments about Exodus as we get started. Now, first of all, the key word for the book of Exodus is the word redemption. And in fact, the key chapter is chapter 12, and it's in this chapter that the exodus from Egypt takes place, or the departure from Egypt takes place. That's why we call the book Exodus, because Exodus means departure, and they're leaving Egypt and heading heading towards the promised land. Now, many of the words the Old Testament uses to describe the exodus from Egypt are words like ransom, redemption, deliverance, and those are the very words the New Testament uses to describe Christ's work on the cross. So there is a close connection here. Second, practically every book in the Bible makes reference back to this book, referring to the Exodus, the mighty miracles of God and his release of the people from slavery, or the law that was given at Mount Sinai. So every book of the Bible is making reference back to this book. So it is truly an important book. Third, when the biblical writers recall the Exodus, they rarely mention Moses at all. And that's interesting because he is the key character in the entire book, but they rarely mention Moses at all. Instead, they speak of the wonders of God. This means that we should pay attention to what the book is showing and telling us about the character of God rather than necessarily about the character of Moses or what he's doing for the people. Now, fourth, the way to divide up or outline Exodus is geographical. So to outline the book, we follow a geographical progression of God's dealings with the Israelites. They're in Egypt, they're between Egypt and Sinai, and then they're at Sinai. So there is a geographical progression and a way to outline it in a geographical standpoint. And then fifth, the proper approach to Exodus is Christological. And so there are so many connections in Exodus with the life and ministry of Christ. And these connections with Christ show us Um, that Exodus is not just a story of salvation, but the story of salvation. And Israel's deliverance from Egypt anticipated the salvation accomplished once and for all in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So those are just a few details um, that are important for understanding Exodus as a whole as we begin to journey through Exodus. So let's get to chapter 1 here. And chapter 1 of Exodus connects back to the storyline in Genesis. There's roughly about 275 years have elapsed between the two books, and Israel's population has exploded during that time to around 2.5 million people. And because of the population explosion, Pharaoh was getting nervous. He was getting nervous that the Israelites might take over the country, and so he enslaves the Israelites. But God was with them because their numbers continue to grow. And so Pharaoh issues orders for all midwives to kill any baby boys that are birthed by the Israelites so that the population can be controlled. However, these midwives refuse Pharaoh's commands. But the situation gets worse as Pharaoh now commands all his people, all Egyptians, to throw any baby boy they come across into the Nile. But what's ironic 
is that the place of death, the Nile River, is also the place where Israel's deliverer is floating in a basket. His name was Moses. Moses was from the tribe of Levi, and chapter 2 describes the early life of Moses, how he was taken up by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in the palace. As Moses grows up um, in the palace, he figures out that his people are the ones who have been enslaved by the Egyptians. So around the age of 40, and there's also reference to Moses' age in Acts chapter 7 in the New Testament when Stephen is talking about Israel's leaders of the past, he helps us understand a few things there. So that's an interesting cross-reference if you want to go there and read that chapter in Acts 7 at another time. But around the age of 40, he sets out with a plan to deliver his people. But he soon realizes that he can't do it in his own strength. And so fearing for his life, he flees Egypt and finds himself in Midian where he marries Zipporah. And verse 23 says that years passed and the king of Egypt dies But the Israelites were still enslaved, and their cries had reached the ears of God. And that sets the stage for chapter 3, because Moses is around the age of 80 when God calls him in the story of the burning bush. That's in chapter 3, and I want you to think about it for a minute here. So he's been 40 years in the desert. He's at the age of 80 when he has the burning bush experience, where he turns aside and sees the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, And he goes over, and it's, in fact, God who's speaking to him. Is a person ever too old for God to call him or her? You know, some older believers feel that because they are older, that they are of no use anymore. But you know what? God says otherwise. And Moses here is a perfect example, because at the age of 80, he's called to go lead the Israelites out of Egypt. That's a big task. But even though God had told Moses that he would be with him and help him, Moses still has doubts. And as the story continues from chapter 3 into chapter 4, we find that Moses struggles with God's call. He feels guilty of his past failures. He questions the sovereignty of God. Is God truly in control? But God often uses those who feel inadequate, and he often brings along other people to help us in these times of crisis. In this case, it's his brother Aaron. And Moses and Aaron return to Egypt and gather the elders of Israel together. Aaron tells them all that God has said concerning Moses, and Moses performs their miraculous signs as they watched him. And so the people were convinced that Moses and Aaron had been sent by God. So now it's time to go before Pharaoh in chapter 5. So Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh, not the same Pharaoh that Moses grew up with in the palace, but a different one. And they ask if he will let the people go into the wilderness to worship their God. But because of Moses and Aaron's request, Pharaoh instead increased the workload of the people, which in turn causes the people to get mad with Moses. And the people can't see past their enslavement. And in fact, in chapter 6 and verse 9, it says that they refused to listen to Moses anymore because they had been become too discouraged by the brutality of their slavery. So I find that's interesting. Their slavery gets in the way of them seeing that God wanted to deliver them from that slavery. But now in chapter 6, an interesting feature here is that there is a genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And if you're like me, you might be wondering, well, why in the world do we have to stop the storyline and talk about Moses' genealogy and Aaron's genealogy? What's the point of putting that in the middle of this text? 
Well, the genealogy serves two purposes. First, it demonstrates that this Moses and Aaron are the ones chosen by God to deliver the people. And second, it demonstrates that Moses was the fourth generation from Jacob. Now, why that's important is because back in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 16, God had told Abraham that after four generations, deliverance from Egypt would come. So the generations from Jacob are first is Levi, then second is Kohath, then third is Amram, and then fourth is Moses. So this little section of genealogy was God's way of confirming that Moses and Aaron were the ones that he wanted to bring the people out of Egypt, and this is in accordance with what God has already said back to Abraham in chapter 15 of Genesis. So those are a lot of connections in in here. At the ages of 80 and 83, Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh to deliver the people from slavery. A famous revivalist of the um, 1900s, D.L. Moody, wittingly said that Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was somebody, 40 years in the desert learning he was nobody, and 40 years showing what God can do with somebody who found out he was nobody. I think that's interesting how God can use the humble and the lowly among us to do great things for him. Now, chapters 7 through 11 contain the famous 10 plagues that God enacted in order to deliver his people from slavery. The plagues were not only designed to show the power of God, but they also were a competition between the one true God of Israel and all the false gods of Egypt. Again, God was showing he is more powerful, and he is the only one true God. In chapter 11, after the plagues here, it's the last plague, the death of the firstborn, that breaks Pharaoh. It's also the last plague where we get the term Passover from. Chapter 12 tells us that as the people place blood on their doorposts, the death angel, quote, passed over their houses. That's where the word Passover comes from. And so the Passover sacrifice beautifully pictured the Lord Jesus Christ, our Passover. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So there's a lot of connections here with the Old Testament and the New. Now, towards the end of chapter 12, as Moses leads the people out of Egypt, the Israelites plunder Egypt, and many Egyptians, who were also termed as the mixed multitude, sometimes you hear the word foreigner in other translations, many Egyptians leave with Moses. So the text says that there were 600,000 Israelite men, plus women and children, that departed Egypt. So if we assume one wife and two children to every male, then we could easily be at two and a half million Israelites departing Egypt. And that number does not include the group we just mentioned, the mixed multitude, the foreigner, or we might just call him the non-Israelite who left Egypt with Israel. You see, when God did these miracles in the form of these plagues of Egypt, there were others in Egypt who believed in Israel's God, and they followed them out during the Exodus. Therefore, it's highly probable that Moses here is leading three million plus people out of Egypt. That's a lot of people to lead out of Egypt, especially for a man who's 80 years old. 
Now, along with the Passover that Israel would celebrate each year, chapter 13 tells us that there was a dedication of all firstborn Israelites to the Lord, since the Lord had indeed saved them from death by means of of the blood on the doorpost, this dedication was to take place when the people had entered the promised land. However, later on in the biblical narrative, and we'll get to this when we get to Numbers chapter 3, God decides to take the Levites for his special possession in place of the firstborn. Well, back to Pharaoh, because when Pharaoh saw that the Israelites had actually left the land, his heart was hardened. His sinful heart drove him to go after them. Trapped between the Red Sea and the oncoming Egyptian army, Israel had nowhere to go. But that's the perfect place that God wanted them, because God performed one of the greatest miracles of the Old Testament by parting the waters of the Red Sea and allowing his people to escape. God then destroyed the Egyptian army, which had ventured in the sea after Israel. So deliverance was complete, and chapter 15 of Exodus tells us that Moses and the people began to praise God. In fact, chapter 15 is often called the Song of Moses. It's a song that was sung as God delivered them from the Red Sea and from the Egyptians. After passing through the Red Sea, the journey to Mount Sinai begins. However, after only three days into the journey, Israel begins to complain, a theme that would characterize the wandering in the wilderness. And in chapter 16, God provides manna and quail from heaven to meet their physical needs. We're told later on in the narrative when we get to the book of Joshua that once the people settled in the land, the manna stopped. So if we add up all the years they had manna provided for them in the wilderness for 40 years, eating the same thing for 40 years, I'm sure they had some good recipes and creative ways to eat it. But the point is, God provided for them every day for 40 years. Even though they had complained, even though they were wandering in the wilderness because of their unbelief, God still provided for them. And as they continue their journey, God provides water again for the Israelites at Rephidim. And it's also at Rephidim where God helps them win their first battle against the Amalekites. And this was also the first time we hear about a man named Joshua. Joshua was to lead the nation of Israel into battle while Moses climbed up a nearby hill to observe the battle. The text tells us that Moses raised his staff up, and as long as the staff is raised up, the Israelites are winning the battle. But when his arms grow tired and the staff begins to lower down, the Amalekites begin to win the battle. So Aaron and Hur, H-U-R, it's a man's name, assisted Moses by helping him keep his hands lifted up so Israel can win the battle. It was a visible reminder that Israel's strength lay only in a continuous appeal to the Lord's power. Think about that. Our strength also lay only in a continuous appeal to the Lord's power. Now Moses builds an altar at that place and names it Yahweh Nissi, or the Lord is my banner. The altar would commemorate God as the one who would provide victory for Israel against her enemies. And the banner was a flag that the victor could raise over his defeated foe. And so in this text, we can clearly see a visible reminder where Israel would get their power from. It would come from above. It would come from seeking God. What a great, great story that is. Now, in leading more than three million people from Egypt to Mount Sinai, there are bound to be some conflicts and problems that need to be addressed. The text tells us that Moses is overworked. 
and he is wearing himself out by trying to handle every problem that comes up. So Moses' father-in-law, whose name is Jethro, gives him some good advice along the lines of delegation. And so Moses handles the major cases while the 70 other men handle the smaller daily ones. And so that helped alleviate some of the pressure and stress that Moses was under for sure. Well, finally, after two months of travel in the wilderness, the Israelites reach Mount Sinai. And so chapters 19 and 20 describe the classic Ten Commandments narrative. I can still recall Charlton Heston going up to that mountain to get those Ten Commandments and bring them back down. Such a classic movie. I can remember it very vividly. In chapter 19, God offers his covenant to the people. We often term this the Mosaic Covenant because Moses is the one who mediated that covenant. The Israelites stood at the foot of the mountain trembling as they stared up at the terrifying scene above. The whole mountain seemed to blaze with God's presence and it shook like an earthquake as he thundered forth his response to Israel's offer to make a covenant with them. Only Moses could stand between and so he goes back and forth between Israel and between the Lord God. And so the task of communicating between the two lay solely with him. And the narrative tells us later on that the people are content with this. They are content with Moses being the one who speaks to God on their behalf because they are utterly fearful of God. And so Moses takes on that role of speaking for the people. Now, if we step back and look at chapters 20 through 23 as a whole, they form the Mosaic Covenant proper. Now, many Christians, if not most of them, know the first part of the Mosaic Covenant called the Decalogue. We've just mentioned that. That's called the Ten Commandments. Uh, That's in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. But what many Christians fail to catch is that the text that follows after the Ten Commandments passage is a more developed explanation of them. And so almost, it's almost a set of bylaws or amendments to help people better apply the Ten Commandments. So the passages we're talking about here will be Exodus 20, verses 22 through the end of chapter 23. That's your more developed explanation of the Ten Commandments. So while the Ten Commandments might be considered the cliff notes to the Mosaic Law, God gives more explanation to, to help the people understand more fully. So, for example, a case in point would be the first part of chapter 22 that deals with some property issues and property laws for the people. Well, what in the world does the Ten Commandments have to do with property? Well, property is an outworking of the Tenth Commandment. And the Tenth Commandment states that you should not covet, especially the things that belong to your neighbor. So you shouldn't covet your neighbor's livestock, your neighbor's wife, or anything that belongs to your neighbor, because those things are considered property. So that makes sense how it works out that way. Well, guess what? It's time to stop. That's all we have for this week. Next week, we'll continue our reading, and we will finish the second half of the book of Exodus. And within just two short weeks, we'll have finished all of Exodus. So again, we're moving quickly. Our 85 verses a day on average And we're going to get through the entire Bible from start to finish in 2020. I hope you've enjoyed a review of your reading for this coming week. We've summarized a lot of things, a lot of more details here that we didn't have time to get to. But if you have any questions, 
feel free to send those questions to Bible reading at lmbc.org, and I will see if I can answer them in a timely fashion for you. Um, we continue to add more people to our email list, so continue to tell your friends about the podcast, about the Bible reading. Maybe they can join in. So that's all we've got for this week. I will see you guys next week.